Good morning. Aren't they incredible? They're so stinking good. I mean, I, um, I mean, one of the things I love about this church is that, uh, that you're surrounded by a group of people, and because I'm the pastor, I feel like I get to know these stories, but that you're surrounded by an incredible group of people. Some of them are invisible, and they serve every single week, and you don't even know the sacrifices they're making, but they come together every single week to create what you experience here. That there is a group of people on the stage that you hear. There's a group of people behind stage that you don't even see that are responsible for why you hear them in the first place. And we've got an entire team in a back room, kind of sequestered dark and like a small closet that's streaming the service right now. And then there are people who are creating spaces that your kids, are they wake you up to come to. And it's just a privilege to be a pastor at a church where um, it's not just, it's not a, like a, a paid group of like religious people who are doing it, it's that there's a we together doing something that, that's so much greater than what me could do by myself. And, uh, and so I just wanted to kind of honor them. I always feel bad on Sundays when I walk up because I'm like, yeah, you can just keep playing. Uh, you're better than me anyway, so you just keep doing what you're doing because I don't want to interrupt that. So, um, but welcome. Glad you're here today. Today I'm going to wrap up this series that I've been excited, enjoyed going through this month, and uh, we've got an incredible year series-wise, but um, I'm going to tell you one of my first memories. Do you have a first memory? Like that, that moment where when you kind of, even as a, an adult, you look back and you're like, that's when I remember, like that's kind of my first like moment of humanity, right? That's like the earliest memory I have in my brain, and we all have a first memory. One of my first memories was falling out of a car in an intersection, um, we were, my mom was making a left-hand turn, and I opened the door, and I spilled out in the middle of a busy intersection as my mom was turning. I mean, imagine my mom, she's, I'm, I'm really small, I'm about three at the time, and I open the door, and while she's making a 20-mile-per-hour turn, my little body spills out. And uh, she, of course, slams on brakes, and like, I'm sure she's probably still seeing a counselor about that moment. <laughs> Sorry, Mom. And, um, and then I remember her scooping me up and kind of putting me in her lap, and, and I, I wasn't really upset. I'd taken a really cool trip, but I think it kind of shook her to the core. But I just think about, man, that moment, like I could have ended my life right there, just opening the door. And it's in that moment, it's maybe slightly ironic, even as I wrap up today, that the first memory that I vividly recall in my mind was one of the first lessons of wisdom that I, I learned. But simultaneously, it's also the first lesson that we see in the book of Proverbs, too. And I think there's a reason. You see, my mom had told me to, do, uh, to not do the very thing that I'd done. Like many of you have said at some points, or have had said to you, do not open the door while we're driving down the road. But unfortunately, I grew up in a period of time where seatbelts car seats, and child safety locks had not been thought of yet. It was still okay to bounce around in the back of a car. People thought that was having fun on a trip. Now you would get arrested, they would dig a hole underneath the jail, and they would throw you into that hole and cover it up, right? I mean, that's like, we've changed drastically in some decades. But that first memory, that first lesson of mine was also one of the first lessons God intended in the book of Proverbs, too. It's the essential of wisdom. It's the first big lesson. Without it, you can't acquire wisdom. 
And it's the one that I've saved to the last because the challenge is, is that all of us know the first lesson. It's not an issue of knowledge. It's an issue of doing. And it's so an issue of doing that this advice that you're about to hear, this first essential in wisdom, was given to Solomon's son. You see, the book of Proverbs was written as a parenting guide, and Solomon, who writes a bulk of it, who's one of the wisest men who's ever lived, derives the content for what we read in the book of Proverbs from his lessons with his kids. It's a preparational guide for royalty. This past week, we had another member of the royal family born in England, right? There is a way that you prepare a future king, and the book of Proverbs was one of the ways that you prepared the future king of Israel. And so, he grows up hearing the advice, and yet, when he's an adult, Rehoboam will make a decision that will end up resulting in his father's kingdom being split in the two. He knew what his father told him to do. The challenge was he just didn't do it. And this is why I saved it till last, because it's really easy. None of us, none of us are not aware of this lesson. It's just that we don't walk what we've heard taught out to us. Uh, as I referenced earlier, there's a passage in Proverbs. We've already loaded it in the message notes for you at the app, um, and it begins with Proverbs chapter 9. And he, let me just set the backdrop so that you, when I've said it's the first lesson, um, I, I, don't expect, I, I don't expect you just to believe me. I don't even necessarily want you just to believe me when I'm talking to you. I expect that in your mind you're kind of processing through, because I, I do believe that faith is a response to a thoughtful engagement with God in the Bible. And, and that faith is built out of that thoughtful engagement. And so the reason I say this is the first lesson is because when you read the book of Proverbs, that what you find in the earliest, the Proverbs has a very specific structure to it. Um, you have the prologue, the first seven verses that basically says, here's what you get in this book. Here's the promises of this book. And then from verse 8 of chapter 1 all the way through chapter 9, you have the, what is called the setup and the tension of the book of Proverbs. Long before you get a proverb, long before you get one of those like pithy sayings, you get this setup. And the way that the father chooses to set his son up, and specifically Rehoboam in this context that we're talking about, is that Rehoboam is being taught that there are going to be two different women that, that will approach him in life. This, this like figurative verbiage that Solomon's using. One is woman folly, or, or, uh, and the other one is woman wisdom. So they kind of take these two different. There's this woman who's a fool. There's this woman who is wise. They, they are the literal embodiment of foolishness and wisdom. And both present their cases to Rehoboam. Both present their opportunities to Rehoboam. And so you have this going back and forth in 7, 8, and 9 of these two women speaking to Rehoboam in the passage. And then out of nowhere, with the two women speaking, there's a break, a strange break that doesn't fit if you're reading the entire book of Proverbs the way it was intended to be read, that it stands out. And here's what is said in the midst of this dialogue between woman folly and woman wisdom and the invitation that they're giving to him both, because both give him an invitation. Verse 7 of chapter 9, whoever corrects a mocker invites insults. Whoever rebukes the wicked incurs abuse. Do not rebuke mockers or they will hate you. Rebuke the wise and they will love you. Instruct the wise, and they will be wiser still. Teach the righteous, and they will add to their learning. This is strange. 
strange break. You have this figurative language of woman wisdom inviting the simple into her house where there's a banquet and woman folly inviting people into her house where there's a feast and there's this strange kind of figurative dialogue happening and all of a sudden, out of nowhere, this passage. Because it's the first lesson of Proverbs. The first lesson of Proverbs stuck in the middle of two voices speaking to Rehoboam is pay attention to who you're paying attention to. The first lesson of Proverbs is listening, which is strange. But it's not, really, when you think about my mom and the front seat, me in the back, and what I do as a parent fairly regularly. What is the constant refrain in the house with a, with a child, period? Or to, that you heard growing up, are you listening to me? What did I just say? Oh my goodness, why do I have to keep repeating myself? Maybe you didn't hear that. Maybe you did. Maybe you said it this morning, like I did. It's the constant, maddening refrain of a parent. And if you're a teenager, it's that part, that tape, that broken piece inside your parents' brain that they like to say over and over. Are you listening to me? Are you listening to me? Are you? Yes, I'm listening to you, but I'm just ignoring you. Right? I mean, we were all there. So in some ways, it's not surprising that the first lesson of wisdom is listening. Because as child, as a child, and even as adults, our fundamental problem, the fundamental barrier that we have to gaining wisdom is our lack of listening and our inability or our unwillingness to listen. And this is why Solomon sets his child up. And this is why God sets us up in the midst of these two propositions to say, look, one of the, the most essential things that you will do. See, in our minds, we think of wisdom as like an owl, right? Or some old, old woman or old man saying something profound that you don't understand. We think wisdom as Yoda, right? But the first lesson of wisdom is not what you're saying. The first lesson of wisdom is how do you listen to what's being said? That's the first essential ingredient if you and I are going to experience wisdom in our life. And that what we see here in the doing, not the knowing we should listen, but the actual doing, is two different alternatives, two different choices. There is the fool, which gets used in kind of a synonymous way of mocker, the wicked. Um, the book of Proverbs uses a lot of words interchangeably, and the word used throughout here is essentially to kind of make it simple for us is the fool. And the fool is a person who lives their life by their own path, by their own choices, by their own design. They are not open to anyone's input from the outside, including God. They want what they want, and that's what they want to do. And then there's the wise, and that's the other one. And so you see these two different paths. And what I love about it is no one feels like a fool, do they? You don't feel like a fool. And what Solomon does is he keeps the foolishness out of your self-assessment. Well, I'm not a fool, so I must be okay. What he does is he uses the litmus test of doing. He's like, you want to know where you stand? Pay attention to what you do. You want to know if you're a fool? You want to know if you're wise? How do you listen? And this is where he presses in. 
He says that the fool, right, in verse 7, whoever corrects a mocker, what did they do? They invite insult. Whoever rebukes the wicked, wicked, again, synonymous with fool, incurs abuse. Do not rebuke a mocker or they will hate you. Now, when he uses the words correct and rebuke, what he's not saying is verbal abuse. I don't know how you heard the word rebuke or correct growing up, and so you may have a different form, but what Solomon is talking about is like advice. It's good, loving, desiring the best for the person in the individual's life. Like when he says rebuke or correct, the outcome, the intended desire is good. When my mom said, do not open that door, that's not verbal abuse. She's trying to protect me from the intersection that I fell into. So it's different. When I'm speaking of people correcting, I don't mean your boss chastising you, calling you an idiot. That's different. What I mean is listening to those people who speak things that are intended for your good and for your well-being. And how does that individual respond? Well, they deflect. They react. This is a simple phrase I think captures in my head as I was studying through the passage. I was like, the wicked make you pay for what you say. The fool makes you pay for what you say. Right? You notice that the person says something, and what do they do? Insults, abuse, they hate you. There's this demonizing of you. And that one of the ways you know you're talking to a fool is that they make you pay for what you say which is a terrifying statement, but something that we all have someone in our mind that we recognize as a moment where we bumped up against this, where we said something, and because of what we said, we had to pay for it. Even though in the grand scheme, it was not about us. It was about them. But that's the posture of someone who's acting like a fool, who's not listening. They want to make you pay for what you say. You become the person who gets their verbal abuse. And I think this passage is so important because I think if you look at our nation right now, it's not a me struggle, it's a we struggle. That there exists inside of our culture right now an inability to listen to one another. That we live in in echo chambers. Our Facebook feeds, our news feeds, they they create a bubble around us of people saying what we want to hear. That It's easy to find the advice you're looking for in today's world, isn't it? If you have a belief, if you have a desire, if you have a will to do something, you don't have to spend a lot of time looking for someone to tell you that it's a great idea. And if you want to live inside an echo chamber, it's really easy to do so. And we find ourselves surrounded by streets and people and our coworkers and our family members and our news feeds and all of it. It's just repeating what we want to hear and what we believe. But what happens when you live inside of an echo chamber is it does not foster empathetic thinking. It does not foster empathetic listening. What it does is it it breeds this kind of enemy way of thinking. They're the enemy if they disagree with me. That In our culture, it's easier to demonize right now than it is to dialogue. That you watch a Fox News, or you watch an MSNBC, or you watch a CNN, and it's almost predictable what they're going to say. It's almost predictable who the enemy is. 
Because when you live inside of an echo chamber, when you take a posture of not listening but just wanting to speak, it's, it's really easy to oversimplify everyone out there that disagrees with you, and they're just stupid, to turn them into a stereotype of what they are and they aren't. And that what ends up happening is that we have this overconfidence about the way we think the world actually is, when in reality, we've just shut out the other part. And I think just to be, as a parent, when I look at my daughter, that's the, one of my biggest concerns about the world she's growing up inside of, is that we've lost an ability to dialogue and to have conversation. It's easier to vilify. And because I, I get to travel a, a decent amount, I spend time in all these different worlds where I hear people talk about these other people that I spend time with. And I'm like, you just don't know them. That's an oversimplification of what they believe and think. But the challenge is, is that it, when you live in that world and you start to, to turn them into stereotypes and straw men, it's easy just to write off what they say is stupid. It's easy to sit on television or to sit in our car and listen to a podcast or to the radio station and just be like, they're all morons. When in reality, we've lost the capacity to listen. And by losing the capacity to listen, we've lost our access to wisdom. I, I think that the way a better we, the people, start to be formed is that we start with a better me, listening. That in my own personal life, I become attuned to the ways that I ignore and the ways that I deflect. And that I start with me if I want to foster listening in our culture. And, and if you ever, I mean, we could talk later about how to do that organizationally or how do you do that. I want to just talk about you individually, and this, these are questions I ask myself. How do you handle criticism? Now, how do you feel about criticism? No one in here likes criticism. None of us want to be told that we're not good in an area. But how do you handle it? Or better yet, how do people think you handle it? What's the perception that people have about you when it comes to them saying something to you? Do you make people pay for what, you, for what they say? Do you make people pay? I know that this isn't, this isn't feel good. This isn't, this isn't make you feel better. But what this does is that this leads you to becoming better. That when we lean into these tough questions, when we take a step back and say, you know what, I want to replay, replay the last time someone approached me with criticism. How did I make them pay? Did I make them pay for what they said? Or did I lean in? Did I listen? I heard this, uh, this illustration this week. Um, there's this interesting trait about buffalo, the animal, not the city. Um, and that whenever they approach a storm, when a storm is coming, that in a lot of other different kind of animal species, when a storm approaches, they flee and they run away. But a buffalo has this very intriguing aspect to, about how they're wired and made. Buffalo will actually turn towards the storm. There's these incredibly moving pictures and videos that you can find and where the storm, the snowstorm's pressing hard and what you see is a buffalo literally grinding it out, walking and leaning into the storm instead of trying to run away from the storm and seeking shelter. 
that this buffalo's head is set. And, and, and it's kind of entered into this like motivational speech world where they've taken the, the buffalo's tendency and they've said, well, the buffalo understand that the best way to get through a storm is to lean into it, not run from it, which does sound really wise. But I think at the end of the day, what the buffalo is doing is something that we can all choose to do, which is to lean into the very thing that we often want to run from. That by leaning into doing the hard work of listening, what we might find is that there is a better me on the other side. Which is what you see, right? That you've got this contrast of the fool versus the wise. And what happens? If you instruct the wise, they get wiser still. If you instruct the wise, they love you more for it. If you teach the righteous, they will add to their learning. The wise do not deflect. They reflect. They take it in. They ponder. What it doesn't mean, I'm not saying that they automatically take in everything someone says, that they don't have opinions. It's that the wise understand something fundamental, as it's been said before, that even a wrong clock is right twice a day. And that the wise understands before I make excuses, before I deflect, before I push aside, before I ignore, I'm going to at least bring it inside of me and to reflect on it. Is it true about me? Is it right? And if it is, then I'm going to do something about it. And if it's not, then I'll dismiss it but I'll have learned something about their perception of me. So even in that moment, you're still learning something. Because if you say I'm this way and I'm not, what I have learned, at least from my reflection, is that you think I'm that way, which is still valuable information. I remember when I was just starting to date um, Jenny, and I was getting to know her friends and was at a dinner party one night with them, and the guy, of a friend of hers, was sitting beside me. And I'm deaf in this ear. I can't hear anything completely. It's just there to hold this microphone up. It does not work. It has been that way my entire life. And so naturally, um, in social, large social settings, not just the fact that I'm an introvert, but because I'm a deaf introvert, I really recoil back. It's hard for me to hear. I prefer one-on-one far more than being in a large setting because in large settings, oftentimes, frankly, I just can't hear anything. And this guy, I did not realize it, the entire night tried to talk to me. The entire night, he tried to have conversation with me, sitting right here. And I, in his mind, was the biggest jerk he had ever met. I ignored him the entire night. I wouldn't even give him the courtesy of making eye contact with him. I treated him like he wasn't even there. I am a low life. Jenny's boyfriend is the worst. Now, I remember hearing that and taking it in. It's like, okay, did I ignore him that night? And I had to think back to it. And I was like, who was sitting beside me? I don't even remember who sat beside me because I never said anything because they never said anything. (laughs) So I was like, okay, well, then I went to the next place. Okay, well, what about what he said? Well, what he said is that's his perception of me. And I was like, how many people are walking through planet Earth who do not know that I am deaf in this ear and who think I'm the biggest jerk because they tried to say something to me and they thought I ignored them? And so what happened after that is if you ever go to dinner with Jenny and I, what you will notice is that she will position herself when we sit down. 
one of the things I had to realize is that I was inadvertently forming all these perceptions. I, I mean, I will acknowledge sometimes I'm a jerk, but I, if I'm going to be a jerk, I'd rather be a jerk on purpose, not accidentally, <laughs> right? And, and so I'm like, so now when we go out to dinner, oftentimes Jenny will sit here so that no one sitting beside me will, will discover inadvertently that I'm the biggest jerk in the world. And that's what I think the wise understand. They recognize that you need to, to listen to what is being said to you, even if you don't agree, because even a clock is right that's broken twice a day. And so here's a couple of questions to kind of challenge and to process through. When's the last time you reflected on unsolicited advice? Can you remember the last time somebody gave you advice to help you? When's the last time? And when they said something to you, did you make an excuse? Did you deflect or did you reflect? And say, you know what, give me some time to think through that. That's a really interesting um, insight I hadn't thought about. But that's, that's a really um, intriguing uh, perspective. I, I don't, I'd never pondered before this moment. Let me honor you by, by thinking about that and I can get back with you and, and share my thoughts. That just to, to kind of be able to pull back and then, how would people who describe you and know you, where would they put you in these two camps? You're not 100% either or, okay? Neither one of us are. But where, where do you, in the majority, fall? And here's a good way of knowing. Do people come to you to offer advice? Are there people who feel free to say things to you that they might not say to you if they thought you weren't willing to listen? I think that that's actually the more terrifying reality. Is that it's really easy to, to think through your mind and to realize that there are not a lot of people who are even willing to say things you don't want to hear. And that's so incredibly rare. And it's so incredibly valuable. And so maybe you're sitting there and you're like, you know what, last time somebody tried to offer me advice, I bit their head off. Or I thought they were an idiot. Or I can't remember the last time somebody offered me advice which is probably also a problem. So let me give you a cheat question, one that will get you there a whole lot faster in the areas that you care about. You don't have to listen in every area of your life, although I think it is the key to wisdom in every area of your life. But here's a test question I've learned from a mentor from a distance that will be very helpful. And it's this simple question. What is it like to be on the other side of me? What's it like to be on the other side of me? Everyone is living on the other side of you. Everyone. Have you ever thought about what's it like to be on the other side of me? I know I think I'm awesome. And I know you think you're awesome. But is it possible that there are people out there, like this guy, who do not think you're awesome? But here's the key. Their perspective of you or their time with you could offer you something if you got it from them that could transform your life? Like, is it possible that there is someone right now in your sphere that if you ask them that question and you give them permission, it would transform who you are? And the reason I can say that so emphatically is because I am who I am today out of some difficult conversations where those people were courageous enough and loved me enough to say things I did not want to hear, hoping that I would hear it. 
And it made me a different man. I'm a different communicator because there were people enough who cared about me, who knew what they were doing, who, who did this regularly, who said to me, Chris, I noticed some things about how you communicate that are not effective. Let me help you. And I said, okay. And did it hurt? Yes. But has it helped? Yes. And I think that it's possible that right now there's someone in your life that if you gave them the okay to tell you you're not okay, you could start to become on a path to that person God intended you to be. Because I think the greatest tragedy in this passage is what the fool never became because the fool didn't listen. I don't know about you. Maybe you're okay with not being okay. I'm not okay with not being okay. I don't want to be an okay husband. I don't want to be an okay father. I don't want to be an okay pastor. I don't want to be an okay communicator. I don't want to be an okay decision maker. I want my life to count. I have a very small, small sliver of this thing called life just like you. And I want my life to be lived in such a way that when I blink in this world and step into the next, that I hear, well done, good and faithful servant, that you lived your life well, that you leaned in like a buffalo into those things that you did not want to hear because you knew that those things would make you better. I don't want to live okay. I grew up around family members who were okay with okay. And I don't want their life. I don't want to get to the end of my marriage and just look and say, it was okay. I don't want to get to the end of my friendships and be like, it was okay. I want more than that. And I imagine that many of you want more of that too. And that you hunger for that. And that the tragedy is that many of us would be okay with not hearing that we're okay. And in the end, what we're robbing from ourselves is the future God intended us to have that we don't get a redo with. And so how do you foster it? How do you form and forge this? I think in verse 10 is where it starts to unlock. This is the the crux. This is the lead. This is the conclusion of this little commercial segment and beside these people having this conversation and it was this verse 10 the fear of the lord is the beginning of wisdom and the knowledge of the holy one is understanding for through wisdom your days will be many and years will be added to your life if you are wise the wisdom will reward you and if you're a mocker you alone will suffer if the first lesson of wisdom is listening this unpacks for us the posture to begin to listen well And the way he gives this lesson, the way Solomon sets his son up for success is he says, look, the beginning of wisdom, the way that you even put yourself in a posture to listen well is the fear of the Lord. It's because of this. One is that the only people who get a free pass not to listen are perfect people. And I I don't know about you, but I haven't met them. I'm sure not one of them. And this church is not a church of perfect people. And if you are a perfect person, I'm going to ask you to leave because you're going to make me feel insecure, right? And you're going to make us all feel insecure because there's nothing perfect about any of us in this room or even online or on the pod. None of us are perfect. What the fear of the Lord does is it puts you in this proper posture. When we hear fear, we hear it with an American 2018 definition. But when the Hebrews who wrote this spoke the word fear, Um, The word fear in Hebrew means something differently than it means for the English language. The word fear for the Hebrews had a bigger, broader, richer meaning than 
our simple emotional reaction or this idea of God with lightning bolts like some ancient Zeus ready to strike us and to light us on fire. That the idea of fear of God, this Hebrew fear, was a lot like what I experienced when I was in college. In my senior year, I was taking animal um, psychology. My undergrad was biochem, and I wanted to kind of take a break from the biochem portion and the chemistries. And so I took this really kind of cool biology psychology course called Animal Behavior. And it was a course designed for people who would eventually go on um, and train animals and FBI dogs and bomb dogs. And so we would have those kind of demonstrations and those kind of trainings. But part of our big assignment, kind of the big piece at the end of the class, was that we had to do our own own, um, animal behavior study. So um, the animals that I chose to do behavioral study with was at the zoo. And so I got to know some of the zoo staff, and it meant that I got to go back behind kind of the screens and to see and to explore and kind of learn. And so I remember uh, we were walking one day, and it was like the lions and the tigers and the bears. Oh, my, was kind of this like sweep we're going through. And at the lion part, he said, um, so this is a female lioness. She just came off the, off the exhibit. And here's this magnificent, uh, beastly woman, if you could say that. Not a woman, but female. And, uh, and she's just sitting there right beside the bars of a cage, and the bars are like that thick. He said, hey, you want to play tug of war? And I'm like, yeah. He said, grab this in. And so he hands me this really thick, heavy-duty um, fire hose, and he tosses it into the cage at her. He says, grab this in. And I'm watching her. She's, she's laying on our, all four paws, and the fire hose lands right in front of one of her paws. And I'm like, she's not really interested. All she does is this. She just moves her paw onto the fire hose. He's like, no, she's interested. And then I see her claws come out, these massive claws, about this long. And they go into the fire hose. He's like, she's wanting to play with you. He's like, grab that in. I'm like, all right. Like, you video this thing, man. This is going to be good. I'm about to beast this lion. So I grab that fire hose. I'm like, I'm sorry, girl. Don't take it personally. And I, with every bit of my weight, and I go to lean back, and I don't move. I'm like, okay. Girl ain't playing. Hands were slippery. I'm sorry. I pick that thing back up, and this time I'm committed. Every bit of my fiber of my being, I'm about to fall back on this thing. And so I grab it, and I go to fall back, and I'm holding everything I can, and I'm not moving. And she's sitting there <laughs> looking at me. Like, this is all you got? Seriously? Her paw has not moved. The only thing that's happened is her claws are still stuck in the fire hose. I let go of that fire hose, and I was like, oh, my goodness. He's like, aren't they magnificent? (laughs) I'm like, they are terrifyingly magnificent. Because that's what the Hebrews meant when they said fear. It was a reverential awe. 
Was there terror? Yes, there was terror. But it wasn't just terror alone. It was this terrific terror, this, oh my goodness, this is incredible terror. It's you and tiny little version of you standing at the edge of the Grand Canyon, realizing how deep the fall is you. It's you in the grand vastness of the sky above you. You. It's this reverential awe of I am so small and so weak in light of something so strong and so vast. And that when the Hebrews, when they chose the word fear of God, what they were trying to communicate is the vastness and the majesty and the power and the grandness and the glory of a God who speaks. And when he speaks, things happen. Worlds are created. Universes are formed. The majesty behind just merely a voice to imagine light and to speak. That power the Hebrews say, brings about a fear, a reverential awe of God. And when you understand who he is in context to you, it changes how you live your life. It changes how you make your decisions. It changes how you see the world. It changes how you see your suffering. It changes how you see your triumphs and your successes. It changes everything because all of a sudden a massive Zoom out has happened on your life, and you stand, if for a moment, in proper position to the universe and to the God of the universe around you. And what that does is that screams to you the brokenness and the frailness that you and I have. It cries out all the imperfections and all the ways that we fail to us. All of that's on tiny display on the headboard of our life. And yet, in that proper position, it means that we are more open to listening. We're more open to receiving than we've ever been. Because we don't have a sense of self-aggrandizement. We don't have a sense that we're better or bigger than we thought we were. We become people who are open and willing to listen. And that's why this is the beginning of wisdom. Because the first lesson of wisdom is that proper posture and position of understanding where and who you are in light of who he is in the vastness of this universe. And even if you're here and you don't have faith and you're processing through faith, just you sitting across the cage playing tug of war with a lion will do that for you too. That it puts you in a position to realize that you are not above. In fact, you need others to say things to you because you have blind spots you can't see and without them, you and I would walk through this life blind. And that the first lesson, the essential lesson of wisdom is listening. And so this week, let's lean in to those difficult things that we've run from. And let's have the courage to walk into a room and to look at people that we care about and say those words, what is it like to be on the other side of me? And when you say it, shut up. And listen. Let's pray.